on Sunday night, we had our prayer gathering together. Um, and uh, I don't know about you, but as we were going through need after need, uh, different people uh, that we know who are suffering, uh, and uh, very, very tough things that folks were dealing with. I left very uh, feeling a, a major burden um, for our church family, but also for lots of folks who were hurting. As I spent the beginning of the week praying for these different needs, um, the Lord continued to just uh, change my direction in this. And then especially uh, with the tornado that hit in Oklahoma, um, the Lord, uh, just watching the devastation there, hearing some of the stories Chad and I are talking about. A parent should never send their kid off to school and have to even question, will this be the last time I ever see you? Um, a teacher shouldn't have to think about it, doesn't feel like. Have to think about the fact that, will I be able to keep these kids safe this morning? So anyway, the Lord, uh, He uh, impressed upon me a different text um, and uh, in Luke 13. So midweek uh, detour, and that's why we are in Luke 13. I think another thing that hit me, it's Memorial Day. Um, I looked up this number, um, if this is accurate, uh, it says it's the most up-to-date number that to date in the history of the United States of America... We've lost 1,321,612 men and women uh, to war uh, who have died in war. That's a huge number. Um, I don't want to round it because every one of those is a life. <laughs> you don't round lives, but think about that. And I got to be honest. On one on one sense, you think about how what they died for and how valuable it is. They died for freedom, and how do you put a price on that? But then, when you stop and also consider the question, at the same time, imagine all that that they were fighting for was just the opportunity that a group of people could live in a land and be free. That's it. On one sense, it's everything, and on the other sense, you're going, that's it. We just want to be free. Um, and, uh, and it costs this many lives to secure that. Something in us tells us that's just not the way it was supposed to be. Right? Um, and so I think this is a helpful text. So before we read this text, let me give you this scenario to think about. Let's say that WXII is doing a news, I just picked them, I, I could have picked anybody, is doing a news story on the tornadoes in Oklahoma and the slaying in London, uh, the various other things that have happened uh, just in the last recent events. Um, and, and they're doing a news story that they've entitled, Where is God in the Chaos? And, and they decide to, to call a local pastor and they ask the local pastor this question. Why would God allow a small baby to be crushed by rubble or children to perish in their own elementary school or a soldier to be intentionally run over and murdered in the streets? What would you think if the pastor responded with this response? I'm not sure why any of these awful things happen. But the clear lesson from this is that we should all repent lest we likewise perish. Would you say that's a biblical response? 
Would you say that he has biblical warrant for it? Would you say that seems like the way that Jesus would respond? Let's read together in Luke chapter 13, and I'll pray for us. Luke chapter 13, we're only covering five verses this morning. Don't get your hopes up, it won't be very short. Um, uh, five verses in Luke 13. There were some present at, the very, at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We pray for us. Father, we are going to look at very tough questions this morning. And uh, Lord, we don't dare venture to just make guesses at these. But Lord, we come and, and we bank on Your Word this morning for help. And so Father, I admit my inadequacy. I have struggled for years with these questions. And I've gotten no better answers than where the Scriptures land. And so, Father, I thank You for the help that's been in my life, in my soul, in my spirit. I pray, God, that by Your Word this morning, You would allow that to also bear fruit in these lives. Lord, that You would use Your Word to create and recreate and transform Your people, Your church this morning. We ask all these things to You, our Father, through the strong name of Christ to be uh, applied in your midst by your Word and through your Spirit. Amen. Well, um, Luke chapter 13, let me set the stage uh, as we're going there. In the middle of Luke chapter 9, we get a major turning point in the book. Uh, Jesus starts heading towards Jerusalem. The book climaxes at chapter 9, and then Jesus takes begins His journey to Jerusalem. When I say journey to Jerusalem, here, journey to the cross, right? So that happens. Um, and then in Luke chapter 12, this is a chapter about judgment. So Jesus has been teaching about judgment and on the mind of the people is there is a new story where just a few years back probably uh, probably at a Passover some Galileans that's the northern area Jerusalem's down in the south and the Galilean Galilee would have been more northern uh, some Galilean Jews went down south to to offer their sacrifice and uh, now Galileans were known to be unruly towards Pilate and the Romans. Uh, and while they're down there, uh, the uh, Pilate sends some soldiers uh, and they execute these people. And it's so close to the uh, temple that it actually says the blood of the folks who were slain actually is mingled in with the blood of the sacrifices. So we're talking close proximity, right, for that to be able to have happened. So what's going on? Well, these are people who are worshiping and a government comes in and, and completely uh, kills them, takes their lives. And... These people were struggling with that question. And so they hear Jesus talking about judgment and somebody says, hey, speaking of judgment, what about those Galileans? Do you think God, God was judging them? 
is probably the way this came up. So look at Jesus' answer in verse 2. And He answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So, so Jesus asked them if, if this happened to the Galileans because those Galileans who were killed were worse sinners than the other Galileans, presumably the ones who were not killed, who did not, uh, who were not executed. Um, and Jesus' answer is no. That's not the case. That's not what happened. That's not the answer to the question of why. The answer to that is no. And then, he turns and he gives them a story. See, the, he's probably addressing a group of Jewish uh, folks from Jerusalem. And these, we know, he's, uh, they, we know they're Jews. The question is whether they're from Jerusalem. And it looks like probably yes. So they looked down on the folks up north in Galilee. Uh, they thought that they weren't as holy because they didn't stay close to Jerusalem like the rest of them did. And so Jesus turns and says, well, I've got one for you. Let's talk about the story about what happened to the Jews in Jerusalem. So look at, uh, uh, at verse um, 4. Jesus says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Now, Siloam is going to be in the southeastern corner. It's a little providence of Jerusalem. It's in the southeastern corner. So these were Jews from Jerusalem. There's a tower that falls on them. What more we know about that, we're not sure. But there's 18 who die. A natural disaster. A tower falls and kills them. And he says... Do you think they were worse offenders than all the rest of the folks in Jerusalem? Is that why they died and others didn't die? Because these folks were worse offenders. And hear Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer again is no. He says, no, but I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Well, there's a lot going on here. Uh, I'll tell you, this passage has been a huge help to Christians throughout the ages, in particular on the issue of suffering, because this passage deals with suffering of two types, two varieties. It deals with the variety of suffering on the hands of evil, malicious evil acts by other human beings towards other human beings. But it also deals with the issue of suffering because of natural disaster. And those are both things that we encounter. And we see Jesus giving us instruction on them. And, and they're tough. Well, what is happening and what do we learn about suffering? Real quickly, a couple things that we can know about suffering uh, because of this passage. First, what about the question, do bad things happen to good people? Do bad things happen to good people? This is the question that is just completely uh, uh, upfront answered for us in this passage. The reason Jesus has to deal with that is there was, the, or not there was, it was the popular theology of the day that the reason bad things happen to people is because they're not good people. That's the way it went. So if you suffered, there's a sin to match it and God is judging. That's exactly how they understood it. And Jesus' answer to that theology was a resounding no, false, that's not right. So he completely says that one's done. The answer to that is nope. Uh, now let's not look down on these folks. Let's be honest. 
This is actually still a popular teaching today. It has been a popular teaching since the beginning of mankind. And we, we cannot um, look our noses down and say that it's not in, in churches today. Folks, it still is um, a popular teaching. Folks aren't courageous enough to dress it in those clothes, but they dress it in clothes of warm fuzzies, but the logic still holds. So they'll say things like, if you are good, good things will happen to you. Or more clearly, do you want more money? Give more money to the church. Uh, do you want more comfort and less pain? You name it, and then you can claim it. Well, it doesn't take a, a, a degree in logic to understand the flip side of that must also work. So, if you are poor, uncomfortable, or pain-ridden, according to this teaching, it's your fault, and you could change this by being more righteous. Hear this. That is a false teaching. It is a false teaching. It is unbiblical. It's unchristian. And unfortunately, it's not new. And unfortunately, it will not be going away anytime soon. But the clear response of Scripture is no. The truth is, bad things do happen to quote good people. And let me remind us that we better be very Thankful that bad things happen to good people because the worst thing that ever happened in the world, the, the most malicious evil that ever happened, happened on the cross and it happened to the best person who's ever lived, the only truly righteous person. You cannot look at the cross of Christ and say that bad things don't happen to good people. So that theology is, is out. Now, what I don't want you to hear, and I don't think anybody would be in danger hearing this, but just want to cover bases. I'm not saying that people don't suffer because of their sins. There are clear consequences to sin. And the Bible gives us examples of this. We see this in the book of Acts. We see people within the community of God suffer from their sins. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, they lied about their offering and they dropped dead at the front of the church. They carried their bodies out. And it wasn't just them. It was people on the outside of the community of God. Do you remember Herod? He decided to hold Herod Day. How did that go for him? Not very well. He dropped dead and the worms ate his body in Acts chapter 12. Um, so what was that? They sinned and God struck them dead. In other words, those are very clear indicators that there's consequences of sin. And sometimes there is the answer that yes, God judged there. And also we know because of passages in Proverbs and in particular the, mo the most uh, explicit one in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, that God disciplines His children out of love. But I want to be clear, that's not what this passage is about. This is not a passage about that because Jesus goes ahead and says it's not a passage about it. No, the answer is that's not why it happened. So then, why? Why do people suffer? Why is it that a group of people would be slaughtered while they're worshiping? Or a group of people would have a tower fall on them? Why? Does God allow suffering? Well, I think the first thing we have to realize is that there is there are a couple questions here, and they can be very different questions. There is the question of why does God allow any suffering? And then there's a the question of why does God allow this suffering? That's the question we started with. We gave examples of evil and pain. 
and suffering and said, why would God allow this? These are very different questions though. And you've got to be careful when you're dealing with them. But realize, the question of why does God allow this suffering is the question that brings with it extreme pain, deep misunderstanding, and a lot of hurt. We don't suffer pain from abstract ideas. We don't feel pain from abstract ideas. We feel pain over particular circumstances. So yeah, it certainly bothers us to hear of children being crushed to death. That certainly bothers us. Um, or to hear, it bothers us to hear of a soldier um, who is killed in the streets or of three young women being locked up for close to a decade at, at some madman's bequest uh, in a house. That bothers us. But the closer the evil and the suffering lands, the worse the pain is. If that were your son, or your daughter who was crushed in an elementary school this week, it would leave you beside yourself. If that were your husband or your son who was run over and mutilated just because he's a soldier for his country, that would leave you beyond anger and beyond devastation. The closer the evil and the suffering lands, the more pain there is. And therefore, the question of why does God allow this suffering, this thing that I'm now dealing with, is a tough, tough question. Why would God allow a little girl to suffer and possibly die an early death from leukemia? Why would God allow a 15-year-old baby to go asleep one night and the next morning be dead? Why would God allow a young man to suffer pain and the misery of cancer while his wife and two young daughters watch? Why would God allow His own children to deal with chronic, debilitating pain? These are all circumstances I heard from our community this week. Our church this week. Folks, these are unbelievably hard questions. They are really hard. And they can cause the loftiest of saints... A hard struggle. Martin Luther, who is a champion and you cannot call him uh, a coward, stood up and said, I will not, I cannot recant. And from there, the Reformation from the Roman Catholic Church began. This man was a German who was not afraid. And he lost his 13-year-old girl and it about ruined him. Here's... Some of what we get in the writings of history. Magdalene was her name. She died in, in Luther's arms. Now as Magdalene lay in agony of death, her father fell down before the bed on his knees and he wept bitterly. And he prayed that God might free her. Then she departed and fell asleep in her father's arms. As they laid her in her coffin, he said, Darling Lena, that's what he called her, you will rise and shine like a star, yea, like the sun. I'm happy in spirit, but the flesh is sorrowful and will not be content. The parting grieves me beyond measure. I have sent a little saint to heaven. And then he writes his friend. And he says, Although my wife 
And I ought to thank God for her happy departure, whereby she escaped the power of the world and the flesh and the devil. Yet so strong is our love for her that we cannot bear it without sobs and sighs from the heart, without a bitter sense of death in ourselves. So deeply printed on our heart are her ways, her words, her gestures, whether alive or dying, that even Christ's death cannot right now drive away this agony. It's a man who's honest. It's a man who's hurting. It's a man of deep faith. These questions hurt. Well, how do we respond to the question of why would God allow this thing to happen? Well, if there's ever anybody posed in history to deal with this well, I'm going to say and submit that it would be Jesus. I would submit that if there's anybody who's ever walked the earth that can answer that question well, it's going to be Jesus. He would have my vote. So how does He deal with the question? He's asked about the Galileans who are slaughtered. He's asked about, or He actually poses the question about the Jews who the tower fell on. And what does He say? He says, did they cause this because of their sin? No. But unless you repent, likewise it will happen to you. How did He answer the question? Let me submit that Jesus answered the question by not answering that question. He does not answer the question, why did this thing happen? He doesn't venture to answer that question. I'm going to tell you, that's where we're going to land together. And i got to say, it makes me feel real comfortable to land there. If Jesus Christ Himself gets the opportunity to answer the question of why did this happen, and He refuses to give the answer to why this happened, then I feel okay with that myself. So, how do we respond to this? How do we as Christians respond to this? Well, let me say, first of all, I think, I'm utterly convinced that a non-answer is better than a trivial, trite, unhelpful answer. I'm utterly convinced of that. Second, I think tossing a five-cent answer at a thousand-dollar question is a bad idea. I think by looking at somebody in the midst of pain and saying, your question is so big and it is so hard, I cannot answer it validates the pain and the suffering that they are dealing with. And third, I think we have biblical precedent. I think the way that Jesus dealt with us gives us biblical precedent, but we've got a whole book that gives us biblical precedent. It's called the book of Job. You remember the book of Job, right? Supposedly a righteous guy. And while his children are at church, basically, they're worshiping all. All of his children are killed. Gone. All his children are gone. Then uh, he, he, he loses his, uh, he loses all his children. He does not lose his wife, but it doesn't take you but a little bit in Job to realize you're not sure if that's a help or not. Uh, you're not sure that that's actually part of the suffering that she stays. Um, but he, he loses all of his money, loses all of his crops and animals, and he loses his health. 
It's a horrible story. It's a horrible predicament. And the whole book is about why did this, why did this happen? And then his friends show up. And they're going to help him deal with the question of why did God allow this to happen? And long, I emphasize long, long story short, it goes very, very badly. You know what they answered? They answered the same way that the followers of Jesus answered at that time. They answered with, this happened to you because you have done wrong. You might not know it, but you have. And that's exactly why this happened. So they, they were there to defend God and to put Job on trial. Who needs friends like this? Right? And then Job defends himself to his friends. And then he finally just goes and defends himself to God. And then finally, 38 chapters in, catch that, 38 chapters in, God speaks out of the whirlwind. And God says, dress yourself like a man. I've got some questions for you. Long story short, for two seconds, Job, stop and consider who I am. And then consider who you are. In the book of Job, the last couple of chapters there, is Job going, oh, you're right. You're right. I'm me, and you are you. And there's a huge difference. You are God. You are God. And folks, that's the answer. That's the answer to the book of Job. How does it conclude? God let this happen because dot, 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 dot. No. It happens. It concludes with He's God. I've heard people take the book of Job and say, well, at the very end, He gets back all that land and He gets back his, He gets uh, some more kids. So therefore, it's okay. God gave him back everything more. And I think, have you never lost a child? Never been around a person that lost a child? You think because he got a little more back that that's just now white? No. It's awful. The answer is, he is God. So, how does the, does the book of Job answer it? By not answering it. God rebuked him and rebuked his friends for trying to answer the question. But please do not hear me wrong. I am not saying that God rebuked them for asking the question. I'm not saying it is wrong to ask the question. It would be crazy to tell a person you have no right to ask why this happened. I'm only saying we must settle on the fact that we are likely not going to be able to give an answer. It is natural and it's right to ask why. I think when I hear people tell people not to ask that question, I think of when someone tells me not to think of a pink elephant, right? You just all thought of a pink elephant. I know you did. That's just the way that works, right? Don't think of a pink elephant. Got it, right? Don't ask why. Are you serious? <laughs> this just happened and I'm not allowed to ask why? No, you're allowed. The Scriptures give evidence of it. The book of Job gives you the right. Jesus Himself poses the question. There's nothing wrong with the question. But we kid ourselves if we think we know the answer. 
Charles Spurgeon said this, and I absolutely love it. Well, it's attributed to him. I, I can't actually find a reference for it. So if he didn't say it, it's still really good. Uh, he says, We cannot trace his hands, but we, sure can, we can sure trust his heart. When we cannot trace his hands, we don't know what he's doing, we can trust his heart. My mentor used to use an analogy that I find very helpful. Say I'm driving down 311. Going down 311 and I see a guy behind me in my rearview mirror who is driving very erratically, recklessly. And I, I come to the conclusion, don't know what's going on, but whoever's behind me, that guy is intoxicated. So I slow down so the guy will kind of come on up and pass me. And uh, as, as, he, as he gets closer to pass me, I, I look and think, well, my goodness, that sure looks like my dad's car. Right? And, and then as, as he gets next to me, cars right up, I look over and go, that's dad. That's my dad. Well, what am I going to do with the prior belief I just had that said whoever's driving that car is intoxicated? Let me tell you what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to throw it out the window. I don't know why he's driving like that. I don't know what's going on, but I know my dad. And I can tell you one thing, he's not going to be intoxicated. I don't understand all that I'm being presented with. All that my eyes and my ears are showing me and, and, and telling me. But I know my Father. Folks, that's really the point of Job. That's really the way that the Scriptures say. You probably won't, on this side of heaven, be given an outline to trace His hands. But you can trust Him. He's your Father. Now, if the person who would have been driving fast as well, then I'd have just said, there's no way that's my dad. Um, so I, my eyes have mistaken me. But that's a whole other point. But anyway, so um, how, how do we counsel? Because I think somebody's going to hear this and say, well, great, Tim, how did I help somebody in the midst of pain? How do I get help if there's no answers? I think we shouldn't forget the power of prayer and the power of presence. I remember a few years back, I was teaching a seminary course on philosophy of religion, and we get to the point on theodicy, on on the questions of why is there why is there evil in God, and how can you reconcile all this? And we'd gotten towards the end of the lecture on that, and the day before, I was going to have to finish the final lecture on it. I started uh, just thinking, you know, I don't know that this is really what's going to be most helpful for these pastors, because most of them were, were going to go on to be pastors. Um, so I, I picked up the phone I called Dad. So the best person I know to deal with who deals with crisis um, and counseling people through crisis. So I say, Dad, I've got a lecture tomorrow to finish this thing off. Um, I want to be helpful to these pastors. I've given them lots of arguments on why it's why we can believe that there's a God and there's evil and all this stuff, and we've gone through it. But I don't think I'm being very helpful, and I don't think I will be. Um, what do you think? Well, Dad gave me his typical him and haw. I don't know what I could really add to that. Okay, Dad, tell me something. Finally, he says, "Well, son, you know, don't forget to tell them that prayer is incredibly powerful, and there's a lot of power in just being there." So I. We'll go back and edit the lecture notes and include a section at the end, the powers of prayer and, uh, and presence, and, uh, and gave it to the students. And about 
A year or so later, I'm at a conference and I hear this voice behind me, Professor Martin, and uh, I'm not typically referred to as Professor Martin, uh, especially now. And, and so I, I turn around and, and there's this former student. He said, I, have, I had to find you. I was so glad to see you. I cannot tell you how helpful your class was. Now, tough philosophy of religion. I found it to be helpful. But I didn't expect anybody else to really find it to be helpful. I'm not going to lie. I was a little surprised that he found it to be helpful. Um, and so I had to inquire, please tell me why. Um, and he said, two months after I finished that class, I got a call that said one of the youth in our church had an accident and she was killed. And I was packing myself as quick as I could and I was driving over her house and I was thinking through all my classes and all the things I'm supposed to do as a pastor and how I'm supposed to help this family in crisis. And then I remembered the power of prayer and the power of presence. And I just prayed. And I made a commitment to keep my mouth shut. That I was going to pray and I wasn't going to be the know-it-all. I was just going to be there. And he said, I cannot tell you how helpful that was. Don't think the irony uh, fell blank on me that uh, the most helpful thing I ever taught my students was not me, but my father teaching the students. Uh, of course, that's the way it would be. Um, folks, it's the truth. If you've ever been in the midst of crisis, people don't need a theologian. They don't need somebody defending their view so that they can go to sleep that night. They need somebody who has a connection with a mighty God who will get on their knees and pray and will be there to say, I'm here. I'm here. Okay, well we've looked at a whole lot of what it does not, what Jesus is not saying. Back to the text, what is He saying? Because folks, this is awesome. The examples that we look at in this text are examples of evil from both natural disaster and suffering. That's what makes this and, and um, um, uh, malicious evil. That's what makes it so helpful. So Jesus says on both accounts, no, but likewise, unless you uh, repent, you will likewise perish. What does he mean by the likewise? Well, he doesn't mean you're going to perish in the same way. He means just as certain as it was that those folks perished, so also is coming your doom if you don't repent. That's how Jesus dealt with it. Let me submit to you that Jesus did not deal with the question, why did this suffering happen? But Jesus very remarkably switches the question to why does any suffering happen? Let me say that one more time. Jesus did not deal with the question of why did this suffering happen. You with me? He switches the question and He deals with the question of why does any suffering happen. How do I know that? Because He tells them to repent. Well, what are you going to repent of? You're going to repent of sin. Right? You're going to repent of sin. Well, where does sin come from, Christians? Genesis 3, right? God created everything and it was what? I'm going to say it one more time. We'll be together, I promise. God created everything and it was good. Exactly right. So was there any suffering or was there any pain? Was there any evil before the fall? 
No. I'm going to say it again. You're going to say no, and I'll feel better about that we're clear on that, right? Was there any suffering? Was there any evil? Was there any pain before the fall? No. no. Okay, I, I feel all right. All right. No, there's not. Nobody. There was nobody crushed by towers before the fall. There were no tornadoes wiping people out. There was no rape. There was no incest. There was no murder. There was no war. That is not the world our God created. But then what happens? The fall. Sin happens. And when sin entered the world, so with it entered what? Suffering and evil and pain. When we see, if you're, if you're falling asleep, wake up here. When we see suffering and when we see disaster and when we feel pain from it, it is there to remind us of the horrific consequences of sin. That's what it's there for. God did not intend it to be this way. Not by a long shot. And that's why when I hear people on the news saying it was not meant to be this way, we've got to correct it. And then they talk about all the laws that they want to pass or all the ways that we can make different things safer. I'm thinking, no. You're right, it's not the way it was intended, but you can't stop it. It's bigger than us. How hard is it for us to swallow in our modern day that we can watch the tornadoes come in? We can predict them with amazing precision and we can say they're coming down your street and we can't do a thing to save you. Don't let us jump up in arrogance and say this is our problem to fix. Let us look at what the Scriptures say and say, no, it's bigger than us. Romans 8 is screaming this. 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time... Listen, this is Paul. Listen how helpful this is. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. we got suffering, but it's nothing compared to the glory that's coming. So in other words, He's going to give a lot of glory in the coming kingdom. And right now, He, by His grace, is giving us little suffering. So when you look at the world and you think, this could not get any worse, the answer is, oh my goodness, that's a lie. By God's grace, it's not any worse than it is. That's Romans 8.18, verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, here's your why. Listen to this. Here's the answer to the why. The why there is any suffering. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly. God didn't intend it. But because of Him, that's God, who subjected it. Why did God subject it? Paul finishes. In hope. He subjected it in hope. He gave us suffering and pain in hope. He gave us cancer in hope. He gave us tornadoes in hope. What? 21. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God. Paul is pleading with this premise. 
He is saying, I'm telling you, the pain in this world is a gift from God to you. He allows it so that there will one day be hope. He's using it to save us. That's exactly what He's saying. The pain is a gift. Now, it's hard for us as modern Americans. Folks, I get a headache. The second I feel a headache, I've got acetaminophen in my mouth. I mean, I feel any pain. You ask my wife, I feel any pain. I want a diagnosis, baby. I want to know why and I want to know how to fix it. And I'm not alone, right? But pain is a gift. There's a, there's a, 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 a chronic disease, anhydrosis. It is when someone has the inability to feel pain. And you hear that and go, well, that's not that big of a deal. That would be great. I first hear it and I'm like, wonderful. Right? No. It's horrible. People with anhydrosis chew their tongues out as toddlers because of teething. They can't feel themselves. They drink, they, they, they eat scalding hot soup with no idea that it's burning their insides out. They have blisters and have no idea they should stop walking. And you can go on and on and on. If you stop feeling pain in your physical body right now, it would be horrific. And your spiritual soul is no different, friend. We need pain. What does pain in my physical body tell me? Hey, dummy, something's not right. That's, that's the long story solution. Heather could probably give you a better explanation than that. But mine is, hey dummy, something's not right. Change something, right? Same thing about our souls. When we feel pain, it is our souls saying, it's not right. And the answer is, you're exactly right. So what do you do? And now you see the picture that Jesus saw the entire time. He's looking at the pain that they felt when the Galileans died and those Jew, folks from Jerusalem had the tower fall. And He's saying, folks, that's awful. It's horrific. But I'm telling you, it is nothing like what's coming. Unless what? You what? Repent. So when we see suffering and pain, brother and sister, it should make us say, this is not right. But it's a warning. Imagine if we went through the entire entire lives, had no idea it wasn't right, and then we get to the very end of judgment. We face the consequence of hell, and the whole time we had no idea. It just seemed like everything was just fine. God is too merciful for that. He loves us enough to let us feel the consequences of our sin so that we might what? Repent. So I hear, I stand here in closing. And I say to you this morning, the Gospel is clear. The very One who says and cries out repentance, Jesus Christ, is the only One who can offer it to you. Because He's the only One who went up on a cross and drank the bitter cup of Calvary, the Father's wrath, so that you and I can be free. And I offer it to you, I don't have a doubt in my mind that if you are of any age whatsoever, that you've laid your head down on a pillow at night and you've thought this isn't all there is, surely. 
And I stand with the Scriptures behind me. And I say, brother, sister, friend, it's not all that there is. There's a much better way. But we've got to repent. We've got to repent and trust Christ. Well, I'm going to close with three verses from Paul. As we begin to think about the fact that we're getting ready to take communion, how do we turn from this to communion? It's the most natural turn. It's real easy. We call it communion. Why? Because we commune, we believe, as a church with who? Christ our Lord. That's why we call it communion. That's where it came from. We are those who commune with Christ our Lord. And we do that by remembering through the Lord's table. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and of God of all comfort, who comforts us in all affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in His comfort too. So what do we... Imagine what that's saying. We believe, we, we believe that we share in the sufferings of Christ and that Christ shares in the sufferings of us. As we suffer as a church, so also Christ. And as Christ suffered, so also His people will suffer. But there is great joy. The comfort with which Christ has is the comfort with which what? We will have. That's our hope. That's where we stand as a people. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that Your Word would be helpful to Your people this morning. I pray, God, that You would remind us that we really don't know. For any particular suffering or pain, we really don't know exactly why. But we do know that You've been kind enough to give us pain of any sort so that we would realize this isn't the way it was supposed to be so that we would turn to Christ, repent, and be changed. So I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here who's not done that, who's not there, Lord, by Your grace, You would afford them that opportunity. Lord, that You would move them to embrace Christ. And Lord, I pray that You would help us as a church to trust and hold on to our Savior who suffered. And Lord, that we would be a comfort to others because we are those who are comforted by a comfort in God. We ask all these things to You, Father, and we ask them through the very strong, saving name of Jesus Christ that You would apply them now by Your Spirit. Amen.